Warning, this podcast contains adult language and material that may not be suitable for younger or more sensitive listeners. You have been warned. Welcome back, dark tourists of the human soul, to the one-stop spooky destination of your most vivid nightmares. Here, all the shadows have teeth, and the dog park is also off-limits. Aww. I know. <laughs> Us and Night Vale have something in common. We are your travel agents of the damned, the ghoul babes. I'm back from hell, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. And a mild case of possession. I'm Vivian. And I'm the lousy t-shirt. Jade. Rude. <laughs> disrespectful and this week as promised we delve back into the vaults our favorite place outside of the basement of the haunted museum of true crime where we find ourselves traveling back to the uk in pursuit of yet another serial killer while not as famous as jack the ripper this one tops the charts in both the truly gory and disturbing yes yes he does true facts we would like to warn our listeners that what follows will be some intensely graphic descriptions of murder and dismemberment, as well as sexual acts and necrophilia. It is not for the faint of heart. And remember, you have been warned. This week, we'll be looking into the brutal crimes and the strange motives of the UK's very own Jeffrey Dahmer, Dennis Andrew Nielsen. But how does this story begin? Well, as most, it begins with a birth. It'd be weird if it didn't. (laughs) He's Benjamin Button, and it actually is backwards and ends with his death. <laughs> that, honestly, would have been amazing for this one. This is true. <laughs> would have saved a whole lot of people a whole lot of not being dead. <laughs> Dennis Nielsen was born November 23rd, 1945, in Fraserburgh, a bleak and dreary town on the northeast coast of Scotland. His father was a Norwegian soldier who fled his homeland after the German invasion in 1940. It was here that he met a young local girl, Betty White. Not the same Betty White. No. Betty with a Y. Yes. With a a Y and White. She's different. (laughs) The couple married shortly after in 1942 and moved into White's family home. Young Betty would find married life to be in stark contrast to the butterflies and fireworks of her courtship. Olav Nielsen, being too focused on his duties with the free Norwegian forces... And his general flippant attitude towards marriage made little time to spend with his wife and his family. Dennis was the middle child with one older brother and one younger sister. It was after the birth of his younger sister, Sylvia, that his mother sought divorce. The family continued to live with Andrew and Lily White. (laughs) Lily White. These names have to be fake. (laughs) That is just too perfect. Dennis's grandparents. His grandparents would be the strongest influence on Dennis as a child, what with their stern and pious ways. Quote, their Christian faith was so strict that they banned alcohol from the house and the radio and movies were considered to be instruments of the devil. Sounds like a fun house to live in. Very. Sounds great. It was so strict even that... His grandmother would not cook on Sundays, so Sunday's food, all of it, would be cooked on Saturday, and they would just have leftovers leftovers. on Sundays. I just was about to say, like, she just would make them starve and just whip them. (laughs) Like, they were forced to wear hair shirts and eat nothing. (laughs) Hair shirts because they're Norwegian? 
Like, you know what we're having for Sunday dinner, penance. <laughs> but I wanted Catholic guilt. You don't get anything. <laughs> get out of this house with that devil Catholic talk. Dennis has been described as both, quote, sullen and intensely withdrawn and, quote, quiet and adventurous as a child. Those are very conflicting concepts. Yeah, it really depends on the source. But what remained consistent is the young boy's bond with his grandfather. Andrew White was a fisherman and, by all accounts, Nielsen's hero. Nielsen could recall early childhood memories of being carried on the shoulders of his grandfather during countryside walks. The old man would even, quote, regale the little boy with tales of the sea and his ancestors lost beneath the churning waves. You know, classic bedtime stories. Totally. He would just sing him a sea shanty to put him to bed. (laughs) Dennis would look back fondly on his childhood, and when asked of his grandfather's fishing trips, he responded, quote, life would be empty for me until he returned. Things would not remain sunshine and rainbows for young Dennis, however, in 1951, while fishing in the North Sea, Dennis's grandfather died of a heart attack, which is kind of funny. Not that he died, but before he went on this trip, he told his wife this was going to be his last trip. That's weird. And it was. He knows all. His body was returned to the shore and to the family home before burial. It was then that Dennis saw his first dead body, and Nigel Cawthorn, author of Serial Killers and Mass Murders, Profiles of the world's most barbaric criminals states that quote the images of death and love were fused in Dennis's mind. Yeah, those are weird wires to cross, but it's easy to see how it how it happened. I guess because I guess they didn't tell him. From my recollection of seeing like and reading about this, that they just brought him in. The body was there, and they didn't they never t- they didn't tell him he was dead. Like yeah, they his didn't. Like he's sleeping. He's sleeping, and it was like that's okay. That he's not, though. He's not, though. He's dead. I mean, although, to be fair, dying of a heart attack while at sea, probably the least traumatic thing that could happen to you while at sea. Probably. Like, I mean, he lucked out. Yeah. He he didn't get, like, thrown overboard and drowned or, like, you know, the ship capsized or what, like, whatever. It's like, he died of a heart attack. Like, that's probably the least exciting thing, like, way to die at sea. Yeah. There should have been pirates. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that there should have been pirates involved. Anyway, continue. Pirates or a shark. Or a pirate shark. Continue. (laughs) Pirate shark. Pirate shark (laughs) isn't real. Pirate shark can't hurt you. It was perhaps after his grandfather's death that Dennis became more withdrawn. He would spend much of his time alone. He withdrew from family activities and spent much of his alone time by the beach. It was during one such trip around 1954 or 55 that Nielsen nearly drowned. He would later say that at first he panicked, as one would in the situation, and, quote, gasped for air, which wasn't there. But admits his struggling, he had a, quote, brief moment of tranquility, believing that his grandfather was about to arrive and pull him out. That's just death, my boy. Yeah, that's just your brain dying slowly from lack of oxygen. (laughs) It was not his grandfather, however, that saved him, of course, because grandfather's dead. Yeah, he's he's dead, That would be crazy, Dennis. Dennis. But instead, another young kid had dragged him out to the shore. It was during puberty that things started to change for Dennis. It was at this time that he realized that he was gay, a fact that was both confusing and shameful for the young man. But don't feel bad for him yet, ladies and gentlemen. Quote, because many of the boys to whom he was attracted to had similar facial features as his sister, he molested young Sylvia, 
believing that his attraction towards boys might be a manifestation of the care he felt for her. No. No, that's not how this works, Dennis. That's not how any of this works. He would even caress and fondle his older brother while he slept. What? No! So how do you explain that one, Dennis? Yeah, how do you explain that one away? I just... No. I, mm. The lies we tell ourselves. My goodness. Like, I'm attracted to boys that look like my sister. Okay, that thought alone should have sent you to the hospital to talk to someone. Yeah. Like, that thought alone... Much less acting on it. And then being Good like gravy. <laughs> I'm attracted to boys because I love my sister, but then I'm gonna fondle my brother. Yeah, I, all of these thoughts, all of these things, all of these things should have sent him to a mental hospital. Yeah. Immediately. <laughs> like, immediately. At 15, Nielsen left school and joined the army. He intended to train as a chef, and it was during his 11-year stint that he learned how to sharpen knives and how to dissect a carcass. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. It was also in the army that Dennis's sexual proclivities seemed to escalate, if you can call them proclivities. While he kept his sexual orientation hidden from his colleagues, that didn't stop him from including them in his twisted fantasies, often having them pose as soldiers killed in battle to pleasure himself with later. That's normal. Yeah. You know, having your bunkmates pretend that they're dead so you can pull the patch to it later. Totally normal. Pull the patch. This has been one of those, this is when the one instance, perhaps, that don't ask, don't tell would have been a good thing. (laughs) The only instance. And that's just the tip of this creepy iceberg. Oh god, there's more iceberg? Oh no. There's a lot more iceberg. I don't like this iceberg anymore. This iceberg is very creepy and rapey. Very. Speaking of... Whenever Nielsen would drink with his peers, he'd also pretend to be drunk with the hope that someone would, quote, make sexual use of his unconscious body. Though they didn't, because they're not like you, Dennis. They don't get turned on by an unconscious or dead body. Yeah, imagine that. Weird. No other necrophiliacs in the, in the battalion. Hmm. <laughs> like, the fact that you would pretend to be drunker than you are just to have somebody take advantage, take advantage of, you? of your body. Wow. I just, Wow. That's not to say that something strange wouldn't happen. In fact, something did while he was enlisted. While stationed in the state of Aden, Nielsen was kidnapped by an Arab taxi driver. This was not uncommon, as Dennis would later tell of his regiment losing several men in ambushes much like this while on their way back to the barracks. The taxi driver beat him and placed his unconscious form in the trunk of his taxi. When the taxi driver went to pull him out of the trunk, Nielsen grabbed a jack handle and proceeded to beat the taxi driver unconscious. This may have been Nielsen's first murder, as he never knew if the man survived the assault or not. I mean, my guess is he kidnapped him, like, for, like, what, ransom? To, like, get money or something? Like, do they ever say what the motivation was behind the kidnapping? Mm -mm. But I want to say when they pulled him out, when the taxi driver pulled him out of the trunk, they were at, like, a storage unit or something. Oh, okay. So it could have been for ransom, or it could have been, like... Gonna murder you, white man. Get out of this country. Yeah. Sort get out, of thing. Get out, interloper. <laughs> get out, interloper. I mean, wouldn't be uncommon for, you know, for British people to be looked on that way because they were, you know, colonizers at that point in time and they were kind of everywhere. Yeah. So not 
you know, they didn't exactly have a whole lot of fans in some of these countries that they were in. So it's entirely possible that that was, they were going to like rough him up just like, to make a point. Yeah. After 11 years, Nielsen left the army and decided to join the Metropolitan Police. As Cawthorn puts it, quote, Nielsen did well in the police force, but his private life was gradually disintegrating. Death became an obsession. He would pretend to be a corpse himself, masturbating in front of a mirror with blue paint smeared on his lips and his skin whitened with talcum powder. Oh, so he just like cosplayed a white walker and just jerked off in front of a mirror. Ugh, gross. <laughs> gross. And just, Dennis, Dennis, what are you doing? There's so much to unpack here, Dennis. (laughs) And none of us want to unpack it. As a matter of fact, put the tape back on the box, seal that fucker up, and send it to Mars. Because none of us want to open it, Dennis. Like, part of me wishes the cab driver had succeeded, because then we could have avoided everything. Everything, yeah. I kind of wish he'd have left him in his trunk to suffocate. (laughs) And then, like, nine hours later, sitting at home on his couch, like, drinking a beer, he goes, Oh, shit, guy in the trunk! (laughs) He runs outside, and he's like, Are you dead? (laughs) Hey, Dennis. Yes, Dennis. He's trouble. He would not stay on the police force long. Only 11 months into his career as a cop, Nielsen decided to resign because he caught two men, quote, committing an act of gross indecency in a parked car. They were probably boning. They were roadhead 100%, I guarantee. That was a BJ happening in that car, ladies and gentlemen. More than likely. That or the full-on act. One of the two. And because he saw this and could not bring himself to arrest them, he decided to resign because he figured, this is not the job for me. He's like, I'm not the one. (laughs) I'm not the one. (laughs) Goodbye. I'm out. (laughs) After his resignation, he went to work as a civil servant, eventually being promoted to an executive officer at the job center in Kentish Town, North London. In November of 1975, whilst living on Tainmouth Road in Cricklewood, These names, London. These these names. These names of neighborhoods, London. I can't. They're adorable and infuriating at the same time. Please continue. (laughs) (laughs) Dennis met David Galichan. I don't care what you say. His name is pronounced Galichan. Like the rejected anime character that he is. Exactly. Like he's a fucking Pokemon. (laughs) That's the only way that I read it in my head. Dennis met Gally Chan when he broke up a fight between the male and some others outside of a pub. With the fight broken up, Dennis convinced him to come back to his place, wherein the two got very drunk. And Dennis learned that, quote, Gally Chan had recently moved to London, was homosexual, was unemployed, and resided in a hostel. You know, this reminds me of a certain stand-up comic. I'm gay. I'm new in town. I have AIDS. (laughs) Thank you, John Mulaney. That is exactly what I was thinking as you were reading that. <laughs> I was like, that's a I'm, lot of information. I'm going to push him. <laughs> anyway, the next morning, the two decided to move in with each other. That's normal. As two do. Yeah. Eventually moving into 195 Melrose Avenue with part of Nielsen's inheritance and their new dog named Bleep. Bleep. These names. I, wow. I don't know what's worse, Galley Chan or Bleep. Bleep Galachan sounds like the name of, like, a sci-fi character in those really bad, like, shorts from the 50s. Like, oh, the adventures of the, the daring Bleep Galachan and his boy ward, Rocket Fizz. I don't know. Rocket Fizz. That's what it sounds like. We need to write this. We do. <laughs> it's happening. 
The deal was sealed with an exclusive use of the backyard garden. That detail will become important later on. Sure will. While Dennis was the main breadwinner of the pair and Gally Chan focused on decorating the flat, the two were in a companionable contentment until Nielsen's abusive side surfaced. Gally Chan was verbally berated and often suffered due to Dennis's short temper. Because, you know. He was mad. He was, he was just frustrated at the fact that Galachan was alive and his heart was beating. And that's what made him so angry, basically. He's like, dude, if you were dead and would just let me fuck you while you're dead, then I wouldn't get so mad. Well, speaking of, they actually didn't have sex that often. Well, I can't imagine why. Because he was alive. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was a living person with a heartbeat. That's probably why. Wasn't really Nielsen's thing. Wasn't his ish. Yeah. Wasn't his zhuzh. <laughs> Things came to a head in May of 1977 when the two had a very bad fight. While Nielsen claims he told Gally Chan to leave, the latter claims that it was his decision because he couldn't take it anymore. I can't understand you. I ask you to start filming from the feet slowly up to the head. And you go, sit, but sit, pan. Bloody hell, don't you, don't you ever watch movies? You must see thousands of movies. You must know what it's like. They're training chimpanzees at Cape Canaveral to operate a camera. Anybody can do it. Batteries had run out. That's why the camera went up the creek. Okay, fair enough. If you think you know how to use that, all you do is point it down and press a button. What are you doing switching the bloody thing on and off for? You never make a cameraman, you know. No, 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 no. no. I'm not going to do anything pornographic. Harassed commuter. Harassed London te- tenant being screwed by the Department of Employment. London Transport. Big chain stores, supermarkets. Can you, oh, I cut there, let me think. Beer, I cannot stand, I got it for free at the bottle party. At 195 Melrose Avenue, Nielsen had found a home, but also found himself increasingly lonely after his falling out with and the departure of his former roommate and lover. The fleeting casual relationships and one-night stands with various young men seemed only to deepen the ache that Nielsen longed to fill with the presence of a steady partner and lover. None of his relationships after Galachan lasted for more than three weeks, though, and Nielsen would ultimately conclude that he was, quote, unfit to live with, duh, and began a solitary existence, drinking at home alone while listening to his music. If only he stayed that yeah, way. Yeah, if only he stayed that way. Perhaps it was this increased sense of isolation paired with Nielsen's inherent sociopathic tendencies that drove him to commit his first murder. On December 30th, 1978, Dennis Nielsen had been drinking heavily during the day at home, but around evening time decided that he must go out, quote, at all costs to seek company from the outside world. He wandered into the Cricklewood Arms pub where he would encounter 14-year-old Stephen Holmes, who had been on his way home from a concert and had unsuccessfully tried to purchase alcohol and had been rebuffed. Nielsen would invite Holmes, whom he believed to be 17, or at least that's what he said, back to his flat with a promise of drinking and listening to music. They would do just that, the pair drinking very heavily before falling asleep. In the morning, Nielsen would wake to find Holmes sound asleep in his bed. He was reluctant to rouse the youth since he was, in his own words in a subsequent confession, quote, afraid to wake him in case he left me, unquote. It was then and there that Nielsen decided that Stephen Holmes would, quote, stay with me over the new year whether he wanted to or not, unquote. Dennis. Dennis. God damn it, Dennis. His fear of abandonment and a dark need to take some sort of new flatmate would take Nielsen over, and he would take a necktie and strangle Holmes ultimately before drowning him in a bucket of water. 
In a bizarre ritual that would follow with many of his victims, Nielsen then took the body to the bathroom and washed it thoroughly. He then placed it back in his bed and would later remark that he found the corpse, quote, beautiful. He unsuccessfully attempted sex with the dead young man, instead masturbating twice over it, and would spend the night sleeping next to Holmes's body. Gross. Yeah, pretty gross. Nielsen would then hide the corpse beneath the floorboards for about seven months before removing it and burning the remains in a bonfire in his back garden on August 11th, 1979. Once the murder switch had been flipped in Nielsen's brain, there seemed to be no shutting it off. Past the point of no return, he recalled, quote, I caused dreams which caused death. That is my crime. Unquote. No, no. No, you strangled someone and drowned them in a bucket and murdered them. That was your crime. That was your crime, Dennis. I caused dreams which caused death. Okay, Andy Warhol, calm the fuck down. You did not. (laughs) You literally choked someone to death and then drowned them in a bucket. Not even the tub, a bucket. Maria. No. Couldn't even, yeah, couldn't even give him the decency of the tub? A bucket? Rude. Disrespectful. This murder bucket. Ooh, a murder bucket. We should sell murder buckets. Murder towels and murder buckets. <laughs> One goes in the other. I feel like this is a marketing, marketing, stroke of marketing genius right yes. now. <laughs> murder bucket. On October 11th, 1979, Nielsen would make an attempt at a second murder, though this one wouldn't go entirely as planned. He met student Andrew Ho at the St. Martin's Lane pub. He would lure Ho back to his apartment with a promise of sex. When they got there, Nielsen would attempt to strangle Ho, who, luckily for him, managed to escape and flee and reported the incident immediately to police. Nielsen was questioned by the police, but ultimately would be dropped as a suspect because Ho refused to press charges. A close call where Nielsen could have been stopped, but unfortunately for his next victim, was not. Like, clearly he wasn't that lonely because he was able to bring this guy back who wanted to have sex with him. Right. And he still was like, no, I'm going to kill you. Because he didn't want them to leave. Right. That was the thing. And that was that was his tea. And that's the same with Dahmer. It was the same kind of thing where he's like, Dahmer got people to go home with him all the time. Like, all the time. But his problem was, he's like, oh, they're going to leave in the morning. And I don't want them to. I want them to stay with me forever. And that at was least, his whole thing. Didn't Dahmer at least have sex with them, like, while they were alive, though? I don't think so. Oh, well, for some reason I thought he had. So he I'm like, may, at least he got like, the best of both worlds. He says that they did, they like, a couple times. There's one where he remembers blacking out, like, after, and he remembers coming to, and the guy was beaten to death. He claims he doesn't remember anything about that. But that's, that's for the Dahmer episode. Yes. Two months later, on December 3rd, 1979, Nielsen would encounter 23-year-old Canadian student Kenneth Ockenden, where he seemed to meet most of his victims at a pub. Ockenden had been in England visiting some relatives, and when Nielsen discovered that the young man was playing tourist, he offered to show Ockenden several London landmarks, one of which I'm sure was probably in his pants. Uh, I mean, that's what I would have said. After a day of sightseeing, Nielsen invited Ockenden back to his flat for dinner and drinks. Nielsen would again succumb to his fears of abandonment, and while he was adamant that he did not recall the moment he strangled the young tourist, he did recall that he did the deed with a cord of the headphones on which Ockenden was then listening to music. He would then drag the body across the floor by the cord and pour himself a glass of rum before continuing to listen to music himself 
on the very same set of headphones that he had just used to end Kenneth Ockenden's life. That's fucked. Possibly while the body was still attached to said headphones. I'm not 100% sure. Like, dude. He would wash the body as he did with his first victim, spending the night beside it. The next day, Nielsen would purchase a Polaroid camera and take snapshots of Ockenden's body in suggestive poses. He would engage in sex with the corpse, laying it spread eagled above him on the bed before wrapping the body in plastic bags and stowing it beneath the floorboards like he had Stephen Holmes. Though uniquely this time, on four separate occasions over the next two weeks after the murder, Nielsen would disinter Ockenden's body and would prop it up in a chair beside him, having conversations with it while watching television and drinking, which is likely the exact plot of the knockoff snuff film version of Lars and the Real Girl, a.k.a. Dennis and the Dead Guy. Yeah. I just, can you imagine being in the chair and, like, you're telling all these jokes, having this conversation, and there's just a body going, just, like, Weekend at Bernie style, like, dead in the chair and you're like he's like sitting there cracking jokes and talking to it like holding a conversation and it's just like and he's just like probably just gets mad and he's like well if you're not gonna laugh at my jokes then this evening is over back to the floorboards with you that and that was like more on like another point of concern I'm like he would hold conversations with this i'm like did he actually hear the person talking back right like or was, was he, he having both yeah or was he doing both ends of the conversation like a fucking marionette like a fucking puppeteer this guy is the Jim Henson, apparently, of necrophiliacs, I guess. Like, was he just making the voice for this person or was he just hearing it in his head? And like, and that was too far down the rabbit hole for me. I don't, I had to pull myself out of that thought line real quick. And I was like, nope, nope. Crawl back, back up. Crawl back out. Crawl back out. Don't want to go this far. <laughs> I don't like this. On May 17th, 1980, Nielsen would claim his third victim, 16-year-old runaway Martin Duffy. Duffy had hitchhiked to London on May 13th without his parents' knowledge and had been on the streets, sleeping rough in train stations and the like, when Nielsen encountered him upon returning home from a union conference in Southport. Nielsen recalled that Duffy was exhausted and starving, so he readily took him up on his offer of a warm meal and a place to sleep for the night. Once Duffy had fallen asleep in Nielsen's bed, Nielsen took the opportunity to fashion a ligature and sit on Duffy's chest, pulling the ligature with great force. Duffy would slip into unconsciousness and drag to the kitchen, where Nielsen would finish off the youth by drowning him in the sink. He upgraded from a bucket this time. I mean, I guess there's something. I guess. He would wash the body with care, as he did with his other victims, recalling that it was, quote, the youngest looking I had ever seen, unquote. Yuck. I feel like I need a boiling hot shower after reading that, directly into my eyeballs. Yes. Duffy's body was placed in a chair and then moved back to Nielsen's bed, where he would kiss and caress the corpse, complimenting it both before and after masturbating while sitting on the corpse's chest. Duffy's body would be stored in a cupboard before decay and bloating from putrefaction would force Nielsen to stow the body under the floorboards alongside Kenneth Ockenden and Stephen Holmes. You see, there's a pattern here. Mm-hmm. After Duffy's murder, the killings would increase in frequency. By the end of 1980, he would murder five more and attempt to kill another. But only one of those five that were killed during that time, male prostitute Billy Sutherland, has ever been positively identified. He followed Nielsen home one unfortunate night and met the same fate as the men before him that dared step foot into the flat on Melrose. I believe his reason for killing Billy too was something like, he annoyed me. Yeah, he was like annoying or something. Like he annoyed him or something like that. I was like, okay, well that seems like a rational response. 
proportionate reaction. And the other ones you liked. Yeah, and somebody you annoyed them. you and you murdered them. Cool, dude. By then, the foul odors and swarms of insects drawn by the corpses beneath the floorboards were becoming hard to ignore. Nielsen would report that the bodies were polluted with maggots and fly pupa that would ooze out of the eye sockets when he attempted to disinter them, like some kind of nightmarish Cronenberg-style pinata. He would place deodorants under the house in the makeshift graves and would spray insecticides twice a week to attempt to keep the insect infestation under control, but the stink of rot and decay remained. Finally, having no further recourse and not wanting to draw attention from any authorities, in late 1980, Nielsen would remove and dismember each victim killed since December of 1979. He would throw the remains on a bonfire he had erected in an empty spot behind his lot. In order to disguise the distinct smell of burning flesh, Nielsen placed a tire on top of the raging fire to burn, choking the air with acrid black smoke. Once the fire had burned down to nothing but ashes and cinders, Nielsen would use a rake to go through the remains, seeking any recognizable bits left behind. Upon finding a skull still intact, Nielsen destroyed it by smashing it to bits with his rake. See, and if he were like H.H. Holmes, he could have kept that skull and then sold sold it. it for money. He didn't remark that when he was burning the first set of victims, the, the first ones that were under the floorboards, he saw these kids, like, from a distance, like, watching. Because he was just sitting watching the bonfire having a good old time, right? Like, he was he was enjoying this. Mm-hmm. And he saw these kids, like, stop to kind of look at the fire. And he said he thought it would have been very appropriate had they danced around this funerary pyre. God damn it, Dennis. Like, every time this guy opens his mouth, something awful just falls out. To the point that I want to punch his stupid teeth out of his stupid fudge knot. Fudge knot? Yes. That's his butthole. (laughs) I thought it was a name for his face. No. No. Teeth are going out the butthole. Like, I'm going to punch him that hard. Gotcha. (laughs) He deserves it. He certainly does. Between January and April of 1981, Nielsen would lure three more young men back to his apartment where they would never be seen alive again. These three remain unidentified, only known by their descriptions in subsequent confessions by Nielsen as, quote, an 18-year-old blue-eyed Scot, a, quote, English skinhead, and a, quote, Belfast boy. The final known victim to be claimed at Melrose Avenue, 24-year-old Malcolm Barlow, would be taken September 17, 1981. Barlow would be found slumped against a wall outside of his home by Nielsen, and when Nielsen inquired on the welfare of the young man, he would be informed that the medication that Barlow took for epilepsy had caused his legs to be weak. Nielsen recommended that Barlow should be in the hospital and helped him into his residence before calling for an ambulance. The next day, Barlow would be released from the hospital and would return to Nielsen's home in order to thank his generous rescuer for his assistance. Bad move. Yeah, he should have stayed away. Nielsen invited him in, and after a meal and a rum and a coke, Barlow would fall asleep on the sofa. Nielsen would manually strangle Barlow where he rested on the couch and stow his body beneath the kitchen sink the next morning. So much for being a generous savior. I just... It just goes to show, though, that he could hold back his impulses when he wanted to. Yeah, and then he just finally just was like, fuck it, and then just, like, I guess, gave in because he saw the guy, like, passed out. Like, you know, he's like, well, might as well. Hate to end on an odd number. I don't know. Like, (laughs) (laughs) In mid-1981, Nielsen's landlord decided to renovate the property at Melrose and asked Nielsen to vacate. While he was initially resistant to do so, Nielsen was eventually persuaded by the offer of cold, hard cash in the form of a 1,000 pounds. Before leaving, though, he would construct another impromptu funeral pyre behind his home, 
where he would incinerate the remains of the last five victims killed at this address, again masking the crematory fumes by adding an old tire to the bonfire. I'm guessing no one wondered why he was burning tires. No, apparently that was like, eh, it was in an empty lot, like like this empty spot behind the garden and stuff. And like, can you, they were just like, eh, there's Dennis out there burning tires and jerking off again. I don't know. Like he said he, he would like masturbate too well if the fire was going. Of course he would. They probably thought this guy was just like, nobody wanted to get involved. Like, <laughs> like they're like, that weirdo's out in the lot again, jerking off to a fire. We're really moving this time, Marie. <laughs> Pack your shit. So after leaving Melrose Avenue, Nielsen moved to 23 Cranley Gardens, and when he moved into his attic apartment, he lost access to the garden and floorboards to dispose of his victims' bodies. Yeah, I'm so sorry, Dennis. Fucker. Fucker. He had to find a new and creative way to get rid of the bodies, which we'll get into a little bit later, but first, let's talk about John Howlett. Let's. Nielsen met Howlett, 23, while drinking at a pub near Leicester Square. He was able to lure the male back into his place under the pretense that there would be more drinking. I'm here for the booze. Well, he was there for the booze. Damn it. <clears throat> Damn it. <laughs> I had to. The door's right here. I could leave. <laughs> <laughs> I could go. The two would watch a film before Howlett, blitzed and drowsy, went to the front room to get some sleep. Nielsen tried to wake up Howlett, eventually giving up before deciding to sit and watch the male sleep while he drank himself some more rum. It was during this weird voyeuristic situation that Nielsen decided to kill Howlett. He tried to strangle Howlett, but there was a struggle, and this was the first time that a victim had fought back and attempted to strangle Nielsen back. Good. Shaken and unnerved, it took Nielsen three attempts at strangling Howlett with an upholstery strap and, failing to complete the deed, before he decided to... to drown him in the bathtub. I do like drowning. So, so far it's been bucket, sink, bathtub. Next, I, he just, he keeps getting like larger scales of water. So it's like, what's next, Dennis? Above ground pool, the River Thames. Like what's next? Where are we going? The North Sea? Like what? <laughs> Our next victim, Carl Stodder, age 21, met Nielsen in May of 1982 at the Black Cat Pub in Camden. As they talked and drank their sorrows away, Nielsen learned that Stodder was depressed from a failed relationship. Doing what any good stranger does, Nielsen lured, aka bribed, Stodder back to his place with the promise of what? More alcohol. That seemed to be his carrot on the stick most of these times. Like, hey, you want to come back to my place and drink with me? Basically. Like Howlett, Stodder had fallen asleep at Nielsen's, but woke up to Nielsen strangling him, whispering, Stay still. <laughs> Blech. I'm just going to peel. Excuse me while I go peel all my skin off. <laughs> Nielsen soon stopped when he realized that Stodder was awake, and Stodder, to his poor, unfortunate, dumb, dumb, dumb credit, thought Nielsen was just freeing him from his sleeping bag and went back to sleep. He awoke again to the sound of running water. He'd later recall that he couldn't remember much except being immersed in water and pleading, no more, please, no more. That was it. Another victim down just like the rest. Or so one would think. Nielsen, believing Stoddard to be dead, brought him back to his bed, only to realize that the boy was still alive when his dog Bleep began licking Stoddard's face and it twitched. 
He began to rub circulation back into Stoddard's limbs to revive him, and later, when questioned about what he had experienced, Nielsen told Stoddard that he had got caught in the zipper of his sleeping bag after a nightmare. He also said he had placed Stoddard in cold water as the male was, quote, in shock. Stoddard not from strangling. No. You know, not from like, I tried to throttle you to death. You were in shock. <laughs> no, but because he got caught in the zip of yeah, the sleeping was, bag. Yeah, whatever. No. Stoddard stayed with Nielsen for two days to recuperate before Nielsen took him back to the train station, wished him well, and hoped they'd cross paths again in the future. Lucky for Carl Stoddard, that only happened in a courtroom. At a safe distance, I'm hoping. Yes. <laughs> No sleeping bags in sight. <laughs> Nothing for him to get caught yeah, in. Yeah, you know, like, dude, you Dennis. almost like, that was like, that just almost sounds as ridiculous of like, dude, you were having a nightmare that you were eating a giant marshmallow and I woke up to you eating your pillow. So I had to like pull it out of your mouth and you like almost ate the whole thing. Like, dude, so I had to put you in the tub because you had so much pillow down your throat. And I was like, I'm going to pull it out. Like, no, <laughs> no one said he was a good liar. He's a terrible liar. <laughs> Nielsen met Graham Allen, 27, when Allen was attempting to hail a cab. Dennis offered to accompany him and invited him back to his place for a meal. Big mistake, Graham. Oh, boy, Graham. When asked about Allen's murder, Nielsen could not recall the time, but remembered approaching him as he ate an omelet with full intent to murder. Is that omelet with a side of full intent to murder? Hold the mushrooms? Yes. Nice. <laughs> I would like my eggs scrambled with a side of Benoit and intent to murder. <laughs> I would like my omelet extra fluffy. Um, and I would like that with a side of ligature and a bucket of water, please. <laughs> he kept Graham's body for three days before dissecting the body on the kitchen floor, bagging limbs and body parts together, separate from the entrails and internal organs. He said something in um, an interview that... The entrails and the internal organs were what kept the bodies, like, smelling bad. So yeah. he would try to, try to get rid of those. Pieces. He didn't, though. No, he didn't. <laughs> he would just separate them from the rest of the body, but he never actually got rid of them. No, he was just like, I'm going to bag them separately and tie it up real tight. And then no one will notice well, then he would. There were instances where he would try to get rid of the organs because he was realizing that was what was putrefying and causing the bodies yes. to bloat and stink. But his method of that... We'll get into yes. shortly. We will get into that. Stephen Sinclair was Nielsen's final victim. Stephen, age 20, met Nielsen January 26, 1983. Much like the others, he was invited back to Nielsen's place and fell asleep in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor while listening to music through headphones. Nielsen is known to have said, quote, Oh, Stephen, here I go again. Here I go murdering again. <laughs> before strangling him with a ligature made from a necktie and a rope. While performing the ritual cleansing of the body, Nielsen discovered deep slashes on Stephen's wrist from where he had tried to take his own life. After the cleaning, Nielsen covered the body in talcum and arranged three mirrors around the bed. He lay naked beside Sinclair, kissed him on the forehead, and said goodnight. Over the next few days, he dissected Sinclair's body and used the crepe bandages that were on Stephen's wrist to seal the bags. Oh, so he used creep bandages. Great. Because he was a creep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's pronounced creepy bandages. It's pronounced creepy bandages, Dennis. God. <laughs> but I thought that was so macabre, the that, fact that you use the bandages that he that was he, hiding his... Yeah, his wrists. And the fact that, like, I don't know what's worse, 
the fact that he would use his bandages to seal the bags that his dismembered body was in, or the fact that this poor soul survived a suicide attempt to get killed by Dennis fucking Nielsen. Definitely the second. Ugh. Teeth. Out the fudge nut. That's what's happening. It was at this point that Nielsen would boil the flesh off the heads, hands, and feet of his victims, much like he did back during his Melrose Avenue days. He began to dispose of the flesh, internal organs, and small bones by what? Flushing them down the toilet. Incredibly smart or a fatal flaw? Well, let's get into that. Funny enough, in a, in a dead body, there's no blood spurts or anything like that. It congeals inside and forms part of the, the flesh in there and it becomes like anything in a butcher shop. There's little or no blood. You know these uh, plastic bags that you have, doesn't yeah. line up, you yeah. slit one of those so it forms kind of a sheet. You, you haul the body out onto the floorboards, put it on the sheet, and then cut it out. In an unlikely twist of fate that Nielsen either never predicted or he himself ironically set into motion, the crimes at Cranley Gardens were discovered by a plumber. Not a policeman. Not a detective. The plumber. The Roto-Rooter man. Possibly the first time that I will ever say that on this show. A plumber discovered a serial killer before the cops did. <laughs> Promote that man. Yes. Give him a raise. Michael Catran, a Dynarod employee, was responding to the flats at Cranley Gardens following complaints by several tenants, including Nielsen himself, about a drain blockage. He's so stupid. Dumb. Dennis. Like, could you imagine the complaint? You know what's blocking the drain, Dennis. But could you imagine that call that he's like, hi, excuse me, I have body parts. I mean, I have a block. I mean, I have hair. A lot of hair. I'm a barber. From my house. From my house. In my drain. I shave a lot of heads. (laughs) Come fix it. Come fix it. Upon opening up a drain cover on the side of the house, Katran discovered what the blockage that was slowing the drains was. The drain was packed with what appeared to be a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones of undetermined origin. Because that's normally what one finds in a drain, yeah? It's just a flesh-like substance, sir, it's flesh. <laughs> but I'm sure that was probably not initially what you think, because you probably like, that looks like skin. There's no way that's skin. Like, right. Because that wouldn't be like, you would not automatically go there just because that is so incredulous and so unbelievable that you're like, that looks like, that can't be what that is. <laughs> You know, totally what you find in a drain. Not like hair, not calcium deposits, not, you know, somebody's fucking toddler flush their fucking toy train down the toilet. No. Chunks of flesh and bone. (laughs) Katran was immediately suspicious, as any sane person might be. Red flags were flying all over the place. So he reported his findings directly to his supervisor and both would return to the house after dusk and agree to hold off on any further investigation of the drain blockage until the next morning. Prior to leaving the property, Katran was stopped by Dennis Nielsen and a fellow tenant, David Alcock. Okay, get your giggles out now. Alcock. Alcock and no action. Alcock and no balls. Take it home with you. To ask what the source of the blockage had been, he shows up with another tenant to go, so, about those drains, huh? either you're trying to get caught at this point or I don't even know anymore. He's just so cocky. Oh yeah. He was just, he just figures he would never get caught. I would assume it's either you're trying or you're just so full of yourself that you never think they're going to catch you. He was all cocky. But um, take it home with you <laughs> again <laughs> for the second time. 
After declaring how similar the strange blockage was to human flesh, Nielsen would remark to Catran that, quote, it looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken, unquote. Sure. <laughs> sure, Dennis. Dennis, couple things. There's a big difference between the colonel and a colonel. Big, huge, Dennis. Nielsen was likely aware by now that he'd have some quick explaining to do by the time morning came and that he was probably most likely about to be caught. So he attempted to cover his tracks quickly by going to the drain himself late at night and clearing the flesh and bone. He was spotted by a fellow tenant, though, during his last-ditch cleaning efforts, who immediately became suspicious of Nielsen's actions. When Katran and his supervisor returned the next morning to find a suddenly unblocked drain, they were understandably, incredibly suspicious. More red flags, not just a few, a tour of the goddamn factory where red flags are made. I just love that it took him them seeing the blockage to think, oh, hey, maybe I should clear the drain out. Like, he didn't think of that in the first place. Right. He just thought that, you know, it's just going to go away. Wouldn't it have been way easier, like, when he heard, like, because he had to have heard that people were complaining. I mean, even he himself complained about the drains. And it's like, dude, you're the source of the reason that the drains are plugged up. And you know that you are. So in order to keep people from finding that out, wouldn't you just, since you know so much about drains, Dennis, apparently, that you went out there on your own to decide to clear it out, why wouldn't you just volunteer your efforts and go, you know what, guys, I know a little bit about plumbing. Uh, I'll go out there and take care of it. And then you could have just gotten rid of your shit and they never would have called the guy and nobody would know. I mean, it's good that he's an idiot, but God damn, is he an idiot. God damn it, Dennis. Upon further inspection, Katran would find scraps of flesh and more scattered bones in a pipe leading from the drain to the uppermost apartment in the house. You can guess who lived in that one. The plumbers immediately called the police, thinking the remains looked as though they had been once part of a human hand. The remains were taken to a mortuary and were identified by pathology professor David Bowen as, indeed, human. Even further, and more disturbing, he identified one of the scraps of flesh as being possibly from a neck, with ligature marks still intact. Holy fuck. Yeesh. The fact that you can still see it after, like, all the... Ugh. boiling is amazing right this same morning nielsen reportedly told a work colleague laughingly that quote if i'm not in tomorrow i'll either be ill dead or in jail unquote such an odd joke <laughs> i'm sure his coworker was like yeah okay dennis <laughs> weird like i'm pretty sure he thought not nothing of it other than just like that's how dennis guy being fucking weird again like mm-hmm. his weird fucking sense of humor but oddly enough he was kind of telling the truth On the evening of the 9th of February, police would wait for Nielsen to return from work in order to question him about the remains that were found in the drain leading from his residence. Three officers would follow Nielsen into his apartment, where they immediately caught the scent of rotting flesh. How are you going to explain this one away, Dennis? More chicken? Let's find out. Nielsen would ask the police why they were so interested in his drains. And when the police revealed that they had discovered the offending blockage had been human remains, Nielsen would feign shock, saying... Good grief, how awful. Chacuse. Chacuse. <laughs> but Detective Chief Inspector Peter J. was not exactly in the mood for jokes. He responded to Nielsen by saying curtly, quote, don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? Unquote. 
To which Dennis denied it up and down, said he didn't know who he was talking about, didn't know anything, claimed innocence. No. Of course not. Dennis Nielsen did none of those things. Instead, he would calmly point to two trash bags in a nearby wardrobe, saying that the rest of the body in question could be found there. DCIJ would ask Nielsen if any more remains were to be found on the property, to which Nielsen replied, quote, It's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest. Not here. At the police station. Unquote. He was then placed under arrest for suspicion of murder. When asked whether the remains found in the bags belonged to one person or more, Nielsen calmly replied while staring out of the window of the police car, quote, 15 or 16 since 1978, unquote. So much for an elaborate game of cat and mouse. It was like, where's the body? It's over there. <laughs> I bet, it was, I was like, oh. I bet the cop was probably like, and I've seen this, like, it reminds me of, like, another stand-up comedy thing where it's, like, somebody's already chosen anger in that tone. So when somebody admits to it or, like, goes along with what you're saying, you've already picked that. So now they stick with it, even though just to make themselves not look crazy. So you can imagine he's like, stop fucking around, Dennis. Where are the bodies? It's like, it's over in the cabinet. I didn't think you would admit to it, but I'm going to stay in this tone. I already decided. It's like holding in a fucking sneeze. I'm going to go outside and reset. <laughs> Storms outside, comes back in. And he already, like, I can just see he already chose, like, elevated anger. And then he was like, he's like, he's like, where are the bodies? They're in the cabinet. You can't play games with me. I didn't think you would admit to that so readily. <laughs> God damn it. I need a glass of water. <laughs> Sorry, still just so angry. But not from Can't walk back the anger now. No. <laughs> the bags were later removed by the authorities from the Cranley Gardens apartment and their contents were as nightmarish as could be expected. One contained two dissected torsos and a shopping bag of various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull, mostly flensed and peeled of flesh, another severed head, and a torso with arms attached but the hands absent. You were saying about missing your hands? Oh no. Oh no. Oh, no. I didn't want them to have that fate. Oh no. I was like, missing him. Okay. Flush the hands down the toilet, I guess. I don't know what he, I don't know what the plan, again, don't know what the plan was there for that. In an interview conducted on February 10th, Nielsen would confess to further human remains being inside a tea chest in the apartment, as well as in an upturned drawer in the bathroom. The remains were from the three final victims taken at the Cranley Gardens Horror House. More bones and sections of corpses, including a skull, the lower part of a torso, and some legs would be found exactly where Nielsen claimed they would be. The same day, he would escort the police to his former home at Melrose Avenue, where he would show them the locations of his funeral bonfires, where he had disposed of his previous victims. Once charged with murder, Nielsen would be interviewed on 16 separate occasions over the following days, where he would confess in elaborate and excruciating detail to his murders, totaling over 30 hours of confession tape. He was adamant when he said he didn't know why he killed, simply responding, quote, I was hoping you'll tell me that, unquote, when asked about his motives. He would speak in detail of how he would clean the bodies after killing them via strangulation or drowning. He would apply makeup to cover any blemishes or signs of decay for as long as possible after death. He would dress them, prop them up, engage them in conversations, or just simply for company. 
He would indulge his sexual impulses with the bodies, either through masturbating over them or through intercural sex, but insisted that he never penetrated any of his victims, claiming that they were, quote, too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex, unquote. God damn it, Dennis. Again, like you said, everything that comes out of his mouth, I just want to hit him. I want to punch his face to custard. Just to custard. So there's no bones left, nothing left, just mush. (laughs) Intercoral sex, by the way, y'all don't know, is between the thighs. Like, it's, he would, like, push the thighs together and just kind of, like, use that instead of an actual orifice. But I guess, whatever. I was like, okay, Dennis, that's splitting hairs. You still had sex with the bodies after that. I do I, mm. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Your dick was still on them. It doesn't really matter in what fashion at this point, because now you're just splitting hairs. Well, I didn't, I didn't penetrate them. Dude, does it matter? You murdered them, and then you and fucked had, them. Yeah, and had sex with them in some sort of fashion. Stop it, Dennis. Stop it. Ugh. And let's be real. It wasn't that they were too perfect and beautiful for commonplace sex. It was because they were dead and he couldn't get his dick in their ass. I probably, that could be. And imagine, like, some of them, like I said, he would trot out from underneath the crawl space after they had been in there rotting. And, mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. I just, no. Like, having sex with a bag of warm chicken meat. Ugh. Disgusting. Ugh. He was asked why some of the heads discovered in the Cranley Gardens apartment had been exposed to moist heat. And Nielsen explained simply how he had boiled the heads to rid them of the internal contents and the flesh. He would dissect the rest of the bodies and wrap larger parts in plastic bags. Smaller parts and scraps of flesh and internal organs he would flush down the toilet, which ultimately led to his arrest. He said it was the only method he could come up with in order to dispose the remains, seeing as how he had no garden in which to incinerate them at Cranley Gardens and no floorboards to hide them under. He claimed to take no joy from the act of killing, but that he, quote, worshipped the act and art of death, unquote. He spoke of keeping victims under the floorboards at Melrose and how he had burned the remains once they had become too putrefied and the smell and the amount of insects they were attracting was becoming concerning. He would speak of how difficult dissecting the decomposing bodies was and how he would have to steal his nerves with whiskey before doing the deed, but still being revulsed and how often he would vomit. Smallest violin playing the concerto of fuckhead in A minor, anyone? (laughs) Dennis Nielsen was asked if he had any remorse for his crimes, to which he only dubiously replied, quote, I wished I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness, unquote. How about chess club, Dennis? Chess club. Or, I don't know, learning to knit. Instead, he joined chess club. Jerking off on chess club. Oh, man. (laughs) Like, there are so many other hobbies, Dennis. You didn't even try. You went right to murder. For real. You literally literally went right to murder. Like, you jumped, you leapfrogged, like, painting class, pottery, scrimshaw, murder. Like, dude, you didn't even try. I don't even want to hear it. <laughs> I had no other happiness. Womp womp. Again, concerto a fuckhead in A minor, please. Where the fuck is my piano player? <laughs> Dennis Nielsen was brought to trial on October 24th, 1983. He was charged with six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. Nielsen pleaded not guilty to all charges, while the defense and prosecution engaged in a battle over his sanity. 
Defense lawyer Ivan Lawrence posited that, quote, Nielsen suffered from diminished responsibility, rendering him incapable of forming the actual intention to commit murder and should therefore be convicted of manslaughter as opposed to murder. Well, sorry it didn't work out, Ivan. Nice try, dude. Dennis had cooperated with the police, providing a full detailed confession, which led to the discovery of the charred bone fragments of 12 victims at Melrose Avenue in addition to the dismembered bodies at Cranley Gardens. The nail in the coffin was Nielsen's own admission, quote, at the precise moment of the act of murder, I believe I am right in doing the act. So Nielsen was, quote, mentally abnormal, but he was still sane and able to take responsibility for his killings. Absolutely. He knew exactly what he was doing. There was, sure. there was a hunt. It was intentional. Like, he would go and lure people back with this 100% intention. I mean, he even said that, like, he's like, I had an omelet and the intent to murder. Dude, there is no bigger, like, premeditation than that. Like, he went out with the idea to do this. Yes. Douglas Stewart was the first to testify against Nielsen. He stated he had woken up in Nielsen's apartment with his ankles bound. Nielsen was straddling Stewart and strangling him. When overpowered, Nielsen shouted, Take my money! which the prosecution argued reflected Nielsen's, quote, rational, cool presence of mind in that he hoped to be overheard by other tenants. So basically thinking that if anybody heard this, they think it was like a prostitute or something. Right, and then he was being, he was the victim and he was being mugged. Yeah. Clever, but so stupid. Very. Fuck, dude. Stewart had reported the incident to the police, but after questioning Nielsen as well, the police dismissed the ordeal as just a lover's quarrel. That sounds awfully familiar. Milwaukee police. Good old homophobic cops. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The second witness was Paul Nobbs. He testified that he went with Nielsen back to Cranley Gardens for some whiskey dick. Get it? Because they were going to drink, and then he'd get the dick. Mm-hmm. Whiskey dick is terrible, though. But it's bad dick. You don't want bad dick. Anyway, moving on. Knobs <laughs> woke up in the morning with a terrible headache, eyes bloodshot, and face completely red. Clearly, he had been strangled in his sleep. But or, or was slowly turning into a tomato. Or that. <laughs> but probably strangled. Probably. Nielsen had been able to control himself enough not to kill the young male. Nobbs had not reported the attack to the police for fear of being outed as gay. Again, homophobic cops for the win. Good old homophobia for the win. God damn it. Carl Stodder also testified against Nielsen, recounting his strangling and near drowning. However, the evidence he provided was not added to the indictment against Nielsen because of his whereabouts, uh, which were unknown until after the indictment was completed. They basically couldn't find him. Yeah. Okay. So they had to kind of, they let him have his day in court. But they just kind of didn't include him in the evidence. They they still let him give like a victim like impact statement. But like his testimony wasn't included because they couldn't find him. Right. That should have been enough to convict, right? I would think so. That's like three or four people that have said, yeah, dude totally tried to strangle me. At least two. Yeah. So they have the witness statements, the physical evidence, his own cooperation, plus him saying, quote, I have no tears for my victims. I have no tears for myself, nor those bereaved by my actions. So no remorse either. Got right. it. It should have been irrefutable, but let's at least entertain what the de- the defense's two psychiatrists said about Nielsen. Yeah. 
First up was Dr. James McKeith. He testified to a lack of emotional development that led Nielsen to have difficulty expressing any other emotion besides anger and to treat other people as, quote, components of his fantasies. He also claimed that because Nielsen was narcissistic, he had an impaired sense of identity and could depersonalize other people. Due to this, quote, unspecified personality disorder, Nielsen had diminished responsibility. Second to testify was Dr. Patrick Galloway. He diagnosed Nielsen with a, quote, borderline false sense as if pseudonormal narcissistic personality disorder with occasional outbreaks of schizoid disturbances. Basically, he was narcissistic and at least partially schizophrenic. That, that's what that long-ass diagnosis means. I, I, I don't think I buy that for two seconds, but, you know. Yeah, he argued that during these instances, Nielsen would act impulsive and violent and would, quote, disintegrate under circumstances of social isolation. The prosecution, however, was able to get Galway to admit that Nielsen was intellectually aware of his actions. To rebut the claims made by the defense's psychiatrist, the prosecution called Dr. Paul Bowden. Paul had interviewed Nielsen 16 different times for a total of 14 hours. He testified that although Nielsen was abnormal in a, quote, colloquial sense, he can't read weirdo. Yeah. Duh. Duh. Duh, Paul. He was a manipulative person capable of forming relationships, but it, quote, forced himself to objectify people. He also testified that Nielsen did not have a mental disorder. The jury adjourned to consider their verdict on November 3rd, then returned the very next day, finding Nielsen guilty on all counts. Nielsen was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 25 years. Which then I think that was when they revisited it, it was just changed to life in prison. Yeah. Like, you're never getting out of prison, Dennis. Stamp. Like, it wasn't even like they took they took the minimum of 25 years away. They were like, yeah, no, you're just going. You're just staying there. You're staying there. We, no, goodbye. And I was like, it's funny because, like, the, the defense's psychiatrists are 100 prescrimped. I'm so mad. I'm putting words together. I might be having a strong. <laughs> the defense and psychiatrists were describing being a sociopath. Exactly. But they're like, oh, no. But they're like, I was like, all the things you just said are him being a narcissistic sociopath, which does not excuse you from murdering people. I'm sorry. You can't use that as a, as a defense. Like, he sees people as, like, what was it? Like, objects to his yeah. fantasies. And has a hard time feeling anything but anger and can't like, I'm like, dude, you just described a sociopath. You just described Ted Bundy. Can you imagine if they'd have used that as Ted Bundy's like excuse for his like, the reason he murdered 32 women is because he saw them as objects. Yeah, not a defense. It's like, well, no duh. Sh no shit, Sherlock. You want to tell me that water's wet now? Goddamn. So frustrating. So Nielsen would kind of become sort of famous in prison, oddly kind of in a way, is because he was, I mean, his crimes were so extreme and so crazy that he would be interviewed at length by television news outlets and the media many times during his time in prison. There was one that he was interviewed for, for like a TV, like almost like a tw uh, 60 minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was like this lengthy interview that he did for this show that then the BBC was like, or like it was the BBC or like it was that they said, you can't put this on because... It's too graphic and people aren't like, so it, it was this whole documentary that they shot with Nielsen with all these hours of footage again with him just freely talking about murder and stuff. And then they were like, you can't put this on the air because 
Yeah, I think they only ended up using like four minutes of it or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there were hours of it because he just. Uh, he would even be asked about the Milwaukee monster, Jeffrey Dahmer, whose motives and even kill count were very similar to Nielsen's. Like, very similar, mm-hmm. eerily similar. He was asked if he thought that Dahmer did indeed cannibalize his victims, as was claimed, a claim which Nielsen would refute. He would say likely that Dahmer didn't consume the flesh of his victims, but that it was simply for the purposes of easier disposal of material that could rot and draw attention, like he did. In an interview with true crime writer Brian Masters for Vanity Fair, Masters would cite one of his interviews with Nielsen. Quote, It is Nielsen's opinion that claims of Dahmer's cannibalism are probably not true. He is talking subconsciously, Nielsen told me in our recent interview. It's a kind of wishful thinking. What he really wants is spiritual ingestion, to take the essence of the person into himself and thereby feel bigger. It's almost a paternal thing in an odd way. Significantly, Milwaukee police chief Philip Areola told the Milwaukee Journal early in the investigation that, quote, the evidence was not consistent with cannibalism, implying that none of the body parts which littered the apartment supported Dahmer's contention. Somewhat tentatively, I asked Nielsen if he'd ever been tempted to eat parts of his victims. As usual, he used his strange brand of humor to disguise an unpleasant subject. Quote, oh, never, he replied. I'm strictly a bacon and eggs man. I just love the fact, like, this all goes back to what the defense attorneys were saying. He's so narcissistic that because he didn't eat any of his victims. He didn't think Dahmer would have. Yeah. Yeah. Because he wanted a spiritual ingestion that Dahmer did. Well, here's the thing, which is part of, and anybody will tell you, that is part of the act of cannibalism, which, you know, sociologists, that's going back to tribal cannibalism. That's part of it. You were supposedly consuming part of the soul of that person to be one with you eternally. Right. But I don't think it was like pantomiming. I I do think Jeffrey Dahmer ate people. Like, I think he did. I think he tried it. Bitch tried it. (laughs) Made finger sandwiches and handshakes. (laughs) And, And his neighbors probably forever questioned Jeffrey's barbecues after that point. (laughs) This sandwich tastes kind of funny. Um, But I do think he did. And I, I, it's, yeah, it's very much central to the whole idea of like, well, I didn't do it. So he didn't do it either. Like, how the fuck do you know, bitch? And it wasn't until 2006 that Nielsen's first victim would ultimately be identified as Stephen Holmes. And to this day, at least four victims from the Melrose Avenue crimes remain unidentified. Authorities remain hopeful that future scientific analysis, as well as advancements in DNA and genetic information gathering, may one day shed light on the identities of these lost individuals and give them final rest. Nielsen would remain serving out his life sentence until May 18th, 2018. Two days earlier, the 71-year-old had been taken to the hospital suffering from abdominal pains. He received an operation to relieve the discomfort, but would suffer a blood clot after the surgery. He would lay in excruciating pain at his own filth for two hours before finally expiring from a ruptured abdominal aneurysm. The official cause of death was listed as a pulmonary embolism and a retroperitoneal hemorrhage linked to the aneurysm. And ultimately, couldn't have happened to a more worthy person. Yeah, I was just going to say, like... Oh, you had to lay in excruciating pain in and your, your own, own shit. shit. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Shovels more shit on Shovels the body. Shovels more shit. <laughs> Gets in with a shovel a couple times. This is awful, isn't it? Just right in the stomach where yeah. it hurts. Is this the spot that's sore? Is that it? Okay, good. 
And to think it all could have ended way back with an Arab taxi driver. With a, cab, with a cab driver not fucking up. Yeah. Could have just forgotten him in the trunk or do whatever he had planned with him. And it's all these people could still be alive and, and none, none of this would have happened. I also want to say really quick before we wrap this up that it's so interesting that they point out his race in yeah, that, that is interesting. Like the fact that they specifically point out that he was an Arab taxi driver, not just a taxi driver. Right. That's a little. Hmm. But anyway. at the same time, it's like, dude, flawed, you fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, dude. You could have <laughs> saved us all a lot of grief. Well, actually, we don't even know if that guy lived because he hit him and he never went back to check. Yeah, he could have died. So that guy could have died. So rest in peace, flawed. <laughs> Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Spooky Nation. Join us next week when we tap back into the world of the strange and unexplained, when we deep dive into truly odd phenomena in episode 27, That's Hot. Spontaneous human combustion, true or false. Until then, stay spooky, friends. The most exciting part of the little conundrum was when I lifted the body, carried it. It was an expression of my power to lift and carry and have control.